0: Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a rating or review. It makes a big difference. It helps other people know about the show, and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, on to the show. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Sieva Kaczynski, welcome to the show. John, thanks for having me. Great to have you, man. And I've been so looking forward to this. Yeah, so I sent you a bunch of questions ahead of time, and then you sent me back a bunch of stuff that's way better than what I sent you. So <laughs> we're gonna go with your stuff instead. Let's just do a quick intro. I mean, I know you from Twitter. I've been following you for a while. For everyone listening, why don't we just do a quick 30 seconds on like who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. Yeah, well, well, my name is Sieva, which is kind of a funky name. I was born in the Ukraine and my family came over here. My mom came over here in 92 with me. I grew up in California. I always thought I wanted to be a doctor. Maybe the pressures of immigrant parents were kind of affecting me. And then in college, I actually took an entrepreneurship class. It was hosted by this amazing guy who became my mentor, John Greathouse. He had started a very successful company, which became the original go to meeting. And he taught this great class in school and basically uh, was the first one to open my eyes to entrepreneurship. I had no idea what it was, didn't know you could start a business, didn't know you could invest in businesses, and just got hooked. And that kind of derailed my healthcare career and I became an entrepreneur. And have started a few technology or technology-adjacent businesses. Happy to talk about those. And today, I run a long-term holding company called Enduring Ventures. And we buy beautiful businesses, sometimes from retiring owners, and we plan to hold it forever. Kind of like a baby Berkshire Hathaway, I would say.
0: And what made the transition from like a tech guy? And I'm assuming just like the stereotype, you know, VC back tech startup type lifestyle to this whole other lifestyle, which is I want to build a baby Berkshire. What made that switch for you? Was it one event? Was it a series of events? I went through a lot of trial and error in my life. I started a company in college, which was
1: an education business. It failed after a year. It was super hard. I had no idea what I was doing. Then I pivoted, started another education business, which became a small software and kind of marketplace where students could help each other study and share notes. That's still around today. And then I started a venture capital fund. We invest in the seed round of maybe 50 companies. Some of them have become unicorns today, fortunately. And then I started a healthcare business in a totally different field. Running clinical trials with private practice doctors for large pharmaceutical companies. So as you can see, I I kind of tried my hand at a bunch of different types of companies or different types of investing and eventually realized that, you know, what I really care about is building for the long term, creating something that has a long term value, an opportunity to work with people that I really love to work with and when I got a chance to work with Xavier, who's my business partner, I really jumped at it. And together, we came up with this idea to build Enduring Ventures, which is a long-term holding company, which really means we buy businesses and we place incredible operators and they run those businesses. And I think at the end of the day, we found that this was the right intersection of our skills that we built up over the years, being entrepreneurs and hiring people and Learning a variety of different businesses. So, as you can tell, it was a variety of different efforts and strengths that I built up to get to where I am today. But entrepreneurship is hard as hell. You know, it was really dark, especially when I was getting started, super hard to fundraise, especially when you're a young kid, as I was, super hard to convince people to join you, to work with you. And frankly, what I do today is a lot more
0: fun and a lot easier for me. So, I really enjoy it. We can commensurate over over all those fundraising experiences, and it's just a huge slog. And so, what year did you start enduring?
1: We started three years ago, or maybe two and a half years ago. January twenty twenty is when we placed
0: our first offer to buy a business. Wow. Okay, so fairly new company, and you guys have like obviously just hit it out of the park. I want to talk about some of your current businesses, but I actually am really interested in a couple of things that you sent me. So companies that you've been interested in recently. And these are all awesome because they're so off the beaten path. I just I love it. So let's start with the first one. Swim instruction business. What is that? And why do you want to do that? Sure.
1: Yeah. I'll plug my newsletter real quick because I actually wrote about it this morning and sent out a a write-up about this Swim instruction business. So every couple of weeks, I try to include a deal that I think is particularly interesting. And I tell people how I would finance it and how I would run it. So this swim lesson business came to me through a close friend of ours, actually also an LP. His father started this business 30-plus years ago. His dad was an athletic director at a high school and then eventually wanted to go into business for himself. He lives on the coast of California. I won't say where, and I'll I'll just call him John for the purpose of this conversation. So John started this business 30 years ago. He built a small building, a small swimming pool, 25 by 50 feet. And now the business has maybe 10 employees. It does 700 lessons per week. They teach kids ages 3 months all the way to seventy people who are 70 years old. It's exclusively designed for swim lessons. So there's no like rec swim as you would see in a normal pool. There's no like swim team. It's only a swim lesson company. Incredible business because parents are obviously concerned about their kids learning how to swim. You know, It's a core skill that every kid should really have. It it turns out it's actually the number two reason of child death, unfortunately. So it's really a good thing to invest in for parents and something that they want to do consistently. And from the part of the owner, not a ton of overhead, you know, just basic staff, basic rental costs. And what's great about this particular business is John has a manager that runs it, right? The manager's been with him for ten years, runs the business day to day. John takes off for a month at a time on vacations and makes upward of three hundred k in cash flow per year. So it's a really beautiful business for somebody who wants to be a business owner somebody who wants to live a great life. They don't need to know much about swimming. They just need to have a great personality or a good personality, be good with people because there's
0: a people management
1: element to it. And then there's also a few simple ways that they can grow it
0: if they do want to grow it. So this kind of business, like just to dissect it a little more, I'm assuming... like, So your major costs are you got to have a pool or you have to be able to rent a pool... And then you've got to have the labor. You have to have people who know how to swim and are certified to train others. Is that really it? Like are there any other costs here?
1: No, that's really it. I mean, you know, there's the usual, which are insurance, of course, kind of a variety of insurances. You would be renting the building from the owner because he owns the building. So he takes care of all the maintenance. He'll take care of heating the pool, making sure everything is on the up and up, making sure everything's properly licensed. And that's pretty much it. He has three full time employees and all the other folks are part time employees, oftentimes high school or college students that grew up swimming. Kind of side note, I was actually a very competitive swimmer growing up through high school, then I burnt out and stopped. So I've taught lessons. I've lifeguarded. So I'm pretty familiar with this industry and I've actually never heard of a business that's a swim lesson company. I didn't even know that existed. I knew there were swim lessons at the pool where I trained, but I didn't know there were dedicated ones. And then I did a little bit of research when I found out about this. And there's a... For every type of business, every weird business that you could think about, there's an association out there. And oftentimes, when I'm getting into a new industry, I want to join that association because it's designed to help the owner's Of people in that industry, it lobbies on their behalf if it has to. It helps them get all the certifications they need. So there's a swim lesson association group out there. There's 500 members, which to me means there's probably closer to a thousand total swim schools like this around the U.S. So there's an opportunity. You know, if you're hungry and you you actually want to build a bigger version of this, you can probably go acquire a few of these and standardize some of the practices and marketing, and maybe even brand it.
0: Yeah, my sisters were all uh, sort of like lifeguards and swim instructors when I was growing up. And I know they were working for a private swim company. It was called Aqua Kids. I remember. And they all had like, you'd show up there. I think it was in someone's backyard, but they'd all have like the Aqua Kids shirts and bathing suits. And it looked like a very well run company. I never would have thought this was a cash cow. It probably was because she actually, the owner had the pool in her backyard. She just had families coming through like every day. So is this a sort of thing like... Just to contextualize this, is this a sort of business that you think someone could buy and have a nice lifestyle business? Or is this the kind of thing that you at Enduring Ventures could buy and actually turn into a really big, high-margin business?
1: I think this one in particular is a little bit small for us. It opened our eyes to the industry in general. I'll certainly keep an eye out for other swimming pool lesson companies just because of the nature of it. You know, we're long term holders. We don't see this business getting disrupted by anything, certainly technology. You know, 30 years from now, parents are going to want their kids to learn how to swim. I think everyone who enters our industry or maybe is a search funder is pretty fixated on recurring revenues and subscription revenues, as we see in SAS, for example, or HVAC. This business doesn't have that, but it's effectively a recurring revenue, right? People may or may not bring their kids, but there's always going to be more kids that want to participate in swim lessons. So it does have a nice recurring nature to it.
0: To me, this feels at the very least like a reoccurring revenue in the sense that you're probably going to take your kid all the way from like the starting bad level to all the way to the top. And yeah, you'll have some churn, but pretty much people are going to keep their kids swimming for many years.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And to add to that, I guess, to your first question, or to your previous question, for people that want this to be a lifestyle business, you can get it financed pretty easily through the SBA. I don't know if the owner would be open to it. You may also, if you build up a good relationship with him, talk about using some kind of seller note where he pays the bank and he also collects the interest. But SBA would be a great route here. It's a 300 k business. You know, I think they usually trade it around three times, maybe three and a half times. So you would go to the SBA and you could put down like five percent. Let's see, that'll be 45K, maybe 7% around 60K. And that's all you really need to buy this business because the SBA will finance the rest. And what you may do is you may ask the seller to hold some of the note, like 5% of the total purchase price on full standby. That means the SBA gets paid back before the owner gets paid back. So it's a small ask, it's a small part of the deal. But the SBA will see that as equity and you can put up less cash up front. So not everyone has 50 to 60K just lying around. But for a life-changing opportunity, you you could save for a few years. You could ask some of your friends to chip in. Because this business makes 300K per year, you could pretty easily make the argument that, look, I'm going to get you your money back. It may take a few years. Maybe
0: you'll give them a little bit of upside too. Yeah. And so I think one of the first acquisitions you guys made was a pool building company. Can you break down the thing for me is it's not intuitive to me at least, how a pool building business is a really, really good business that you guys would say, yeah, this should be one of our first acquisitions. Can you break down what makes that business attractive?
1: Sure. Yeah. It's Totally different industry. They both have pool in the name, but that's about it. (laughs) Um, Our pool building company is based in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's called Dolphin Swimming Pools. Some people already know that. We don't buy contracting businesses normally. There's a few reasons, so I'll outline them here. So, one of them is you have cyclicality, right? Like if you're building houses and all of a sudden there's some level of recession, like we're starting to see right now the housing boom will slow down and it could meaningfully hurt your business. That's the first reason. The second reason is payment cycles. So oftentimes when you're a general contractor, you will build something today. Let's say you go and you build the walls of a house, you pay for that, you pay for the labor, you pay for the supplies, and usually 30, 60 days later, the customer will pay you. That's just the normal payment cycle. So you're in the hole for that period of time until you get paid. And then the last thing that we usually see is these businesses aren't easily scalable down or scalable up. The reason the pool construction business caught our eye, this one in particular, is that it scales up and it scales down because it does most of its work through subcontractors. So if you think of Dolphin Swimming Pools, it's mostly a marketing, sales, and quality assurance business. right? So they bring in the leads, they... Design the pool. Then they have lead, like construction leads that go around and manage all the different subcontractors. But everything from the pool getting dug to the plumbing to the shotcrete, which is cement, to the electricity, everything getting done, including the tile. Each of those are different subcontractors, and the subcontractor market in Arizona is really healthy. So you can imagine if if the industry's booming, you can grow, and you have a lot of competition, so you don't have to overpay. And if there's a downturn or if there's a slowdown, then you can shrink and not have to cut any employees. right? And you just work with less subcontractors in that period. So that's something that we like. The other thing that we really like is that customers are paying up front. The pool phases are broken down into 5 different phases. And before each phase, you get paid. So it has a negative cash conversion cycle, which is really an incredible benefit because you have cash up front that you can then invest into a variety of different activities, and then the third and last thing is it's it's really scalable and not asset heavy. So we don't have to go out and buy really heavy trucks or cranes or whatever it is that people need when they're doing construction to grow. We can use all the cash flow that we receive to re- reinvest in our other businesses. So it's a it's an asset light business that scales easily.
0: We love it. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And also, I would imagine that seasonality isn't an issue because it's hot all the time. It is hot all the time. Yeah, we looked at a business on the
1: East Coast, actually, and they did incredibly well, extremely profitable. But there were two differences. One was that there's not a big subcontractor market on the East Coast. So it's mostly their own employees. And the second thing is they only build like seven months a year or six months a year because the ground is frozen the rest of the time. Whereas in Arizona... We can build year-round. And for 5 months a year, everybody needs a swimming pool. And for the rest of the year, everybody would like a swimming pool. So it's a good, it's a market that we're very fond of.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's do one more company and then I want to jump to something else. Do you want to talk about options trading or scaffolding? Well, let's talk about scaffolding. Okay. So tell us about the scaffolding business. Sure. So I actually wrote about
1: a scaffolding business a month ago on my Twitter. And Another scaffolding business owner reached out. Actually, his son reached out to me and he introduced me to his father. I won't mention the company name here, but it's kind of based in the Bay Area. Owner's in his 70s, has been running this business for upwards of 30 years. He has a business partner in it. He's ready to retire. His business partner wants to stick around. Same deal, kind of as the pool company does a few hundred K in cash flow per year. They have over a million dollars of inventory and assets. They have a really good team that's been with them for ten plus years. So, an owner, somebody who would step into this, ideally, is somebody with a little bit of construction experience, scaffolding experience, or estimation experience. And they could shadow one of the owners. So, one of them would retire, you know, maybe over the next six months, and the other one would actually wants to stick around and continue being an employee of the company. I think you could buy this business for two and a half times cash flow. And it would come with a bunch of inventory. It would come with a team. It would come with customers and even a backlog. And you could just hit the ground running. A little bit more of a lift than the pool lesson business. But the thing that I love about scaffolding is once you buy all of this inventory, one, it's something that you can reuse over and over again right, and just charge for it. And two, it becomes a bit of a competitive advantage right? because nobody can just open another scaffolding business and buy a couple million dollars worth of scaffolding in your backyard. So by default, there's always going to be a limited number of scaffolding companies that you're competing with.
0: Yeah. And I would think also, everything you said makes sense. And I would think on top of that, because this is a business that's been owned by someone that's been doing it for 20, 30, 40 years, you could also come in and probably modernize a lot of the operations, digitize things, run up the SEO, the SEM, and just grow that business.
1: Yeah, definitely. We are also in the HVAC and plumbing space. We own three businesses in three different states that provide heating, air conditioning, and plumbing service. And one of the highest leverage activities that we do is just implement an industry-known software called service type extremely successful company. They've built a niche product for plumbers and heating and air conditioning technicians. Most owners you 10-20 know, years into their career just don't really want to rock the boat. They're doing well. They're making good money. Maybe they're working a lot less than they used to. They don't need the headache of implementing a new software or trying a new marketing program. But given that we want to come in and grow the business, optimize the business, we have a much higher incentive to do that. So. We'll get in there, we'll implement Service Titan. Immediately, we see increased efficiency as most companies do when they use a good suite of technology. And also, we can kind of use the latest and greatest hiring and marketing techs. So, I think that trifecta is an obvious
0: way to increase the value of the business. Yeah. So, you guys at Enduring Ventures, I don't know what's public, what's private, but I've heard some numbers. These aren't verified, so I might be wrong. But I've heard something like you initially raised like to start this fund, the business, and you've grown that significantly over the last couple of years. Can you talk about just what the growth has been, what you've done right? Because you've obviously done something right. You guys are growing, you're making a name for yourself. So what's that first couple of years been like?
1: So this whole journey started with a little bit of capital that we raised from friends and SBA loans that we personally guaranteed. SBA is an incredible program in the US. I just talked about it for the swimming pool uh, lesson business. And basically what it allows you to do is it allows you to put down 5 or most often 10% of the purchase price of a business. So if you have a $1 million dollar business, you could put down 100k or if you're crafty, you can maybe get it down to 50k and you can buy that $1 million dollar business. So we each person is allowed up to $5 million per the SBA. So you can buy a pretty meaningful size business, and really get your cash flow engine going. And that's really the secret of these holding companies. You need a cash flow engine that you can count on, that you can then go and reinvest in whatever unique opportunities you have. And the place where I learned this is from Berkshire Hathaway the early days of Berkshire Hathaway the way it started is Warren Buffett had an investment partnership at some point he buys into Berkshire Hathaway the textile mill which is doing about 4 million of cash flow per year and he gets it at an incredibly reasonable price first he comes in as a minority shareholder then he realizes if he takes over majority he can direct the operations and he can also decide what happens to that 4 million dollars cash flow so at that point, he dissolves his investment partnership and he goes all in on buying businesses. He purchases Berkshire Hathaway and then instead of reinvesting in the textile mill, which is a dying industry in the US because everything's moving abroad, he uses that $4 million of cash flow to invest in blue chip stamps, which becomes another successful cash flow source for him. And then eventually, American Express and Geico and Cease Candies and all these businesses that we know him for today. So if you zoom in on what kicked off this you know, multi-hundred-billion-dollar empire, it's really that perpetual source of cash flow that he then was able to direct in an extremely intelligent and thoughtful manner. He's a world-class investor. By no means are we or anybody else a Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger type. But we had a similar lens when we started at Durant Ventures we were looking for that original cash flow perpetual source. And we used SBA to go out and buy three broadband businesses. And then we got lucky and were able to buy upcouncil.com because they had originally announced a shutdown. And we turned that into a nice cash flow source. So the combination of those few businesses have allowed us to build up our cash balance sheet, reinvest in more companies. And today we own a portfolio of 12 companies.
0: Amazing. And a lot of them aren't... like On your website, I think you only have like four or five of them. Is that intentional? Or is that just you haven't had the time to update the website?
1: Well, the way we think about this is in categories. So we actually have multiple businesses within each category, or we call them platforms. So our first platform is Rango Broadband. Rango Broadband provides internet to people's homes and businesses in three states. And it actually owns four businesses. It owns four small businesses. Then we have our B2B SaaS platform called Enduring Technologies today. And it owns three companies, three B2B SaaS companies. Similar with our HVAC and plumbing company, it's called Snowball Industries. A hat tip actually to the book about Warren Buffett called Snowball. And it owns three HVAC plumbing companies in three states. And then we have our swimming pool construction business. So that's the portfolio. We've also started a couple of businesses, but that's the core. That's our core focus.
0: And most holdcos, and I know obviously you follow Mark Leonard and Warren Buffett and, and all these people who have done it. Most holdcos I find turn into holdcos of holdcos after a while because you, as you said, you have these platforms where you're really good at doing this. Let's go ahead and just focus on that and build that out. And you sort of have these, these different verticals. I want to jump to something that was super interesting the spiral of buying. I've never seen this before. A high-performance conglomerate. So extraordinary returns on asset-light businesses in the early days, followed by buying well-priced businesses and applying good operations. And then number three, paying higher multiples for larger acquisitions and declining pre-tax and pre-interest returns on total capital. So kind of like the three, I guess, what, phases of the conglomerate life cycle?
1: Yeah. Is that Mark Leonard? I don't remember who said that quote.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's that Mark Leonard. You got it. Yeah. So, is that something like that actually makes sense? So, you kind of just described the extraordinary returns on asset light businesses. So, that would be like your businesses that don't have a lot of CapEx and generate a lot of returns. And then, step two and three, can you kind of break those down? Buying well priced sure. businesses and applying good operations?
1: Yeah, Mark Leonard. And I highly recommend reading his letters to shareholders. He stopped at some point, but for 5-10 years, he, he wrote these incredible letters to shareholders. And I learned a lot by reading the shareholder letters of other co owners because they are sharing lessons through painful firsthand experience sometimes. Sometimes positive, sometimes painful. So you really got to read them between the lines to pick out what's important. Mark Leonard... Oftentimes highlights two concepts in his letters and he reiterates them pretty often. The first one is the desire for people to build empires. And we are well aware of this. So oftentimes when you start a hold co, the first thing you want to do is you want to help your companies in a variety of different ways. You want to help them with recruiting, you want to help them with marketing and sales. The lesson that we learn over and over again is to be inspired by Mark and Warren Buffett and delegate to the far extremes of your holdco and have a very, very small holding company parent. So Mark Leonard says the only way to do that because people naturally want to hire more people. That's just a human desire. He says you have to just fix the number of people you have at your holdco level and not go beyond that. Because there's not much you can do to really help your companies. It really comes down to the leaders of those companies. So that's the first main concept is keep the holding company small. The second main concept that you're talking about is as you grow, as you increase the size of your cash flow engine and your investment pool, your desire is to pursue bigger and bigger deals. right? Because you know that pursuing a small deal and doing due diligence on a small deal is the same amount of work as doing due diligence on a big deal. Except that oftentimes your small deal and your small deal is going to generate less revenue, less cash flow, and your big deal is usually going to generate more revenue and more cash flow. One thing that Mark cautions against, and they've done a really good job at Constellation of of being true to this, is he cautions against investors going out and buying bigger and bigger companies. And that's what private equity does, right? From the beginning, private equity used to buy businesses that were. $50 million in value, then $200 million. Now you see private equity taking down $100 billion, $50 billion businesses. And the reality is that your returns go down oftentimes when the business gets bigger. So if you continue focusing around small businesses, you can get them at better prices and they have more opportunity for growth. So you really need to create an incredible vetting and diligence team and operating team in order to run those smaller businesses. That's the first part of what he's saying. I and mean, it's certainly something that we think about a lot. Even Warren Buffett talks about this as well. He said like, look, the bigger my cash pool got, the harder it has been for me to return upwards of 30%. Whereas if I had you know, $50 million today, I should be able to return 50 to 100% per year, which is unheard of in private equity. The second thing that he's talking about is investing in asset light versus asset heavy businesses. Constellation really only invests in asset light businesses. But again, as you get bigger, there's a desire to deploy your capital to put it somewhere. And asset heavy businesses are are sometimes a good place to do that. And we've actually seen Warren Buffett do that with his railroads, where it's an endless source of somewhere where he can put his cash flow. But again, eats up your cash
0: flow, doesn't generate as much cash as a smaller.
1: Asset light business,
0: yeah, that's interesting. And so, how do you think about this? Because you guys are, are relatively early. I mean, we've been doing this for two years. Is this all stuff that you've kind of learned and read about and researched in the last two years, or were you like a student of this going back a decade and now you're just applying it today?
1: I read my first book on Warren Buffett when I was maybe 22. I think I was. That's when Snowball. I don't remember when Snowball came out, but that was the first book I read. I was running my education startup at the time, and I loved it. It's a huge book, it's extremely detailed, written by Alice Schroeder. She did a really good job with it. And you know, I was toiling away with my startup. It was kind of working, generating some cash flow, generating some good revenue. And then I looked at Warren Buffett and he is able to take a business, pull out its cash flow, and reinvest it in another business that maybe has more growth opportunity. And here I was stuck with my single business running a day-to-day, making sure it survives, and realizing that you know, as I invested more cash flow into it, it wasn't going to grow the way I wanted it to. So really, the best use of my capital as an investor would be to take all of that money out of the business and go buy a totally different company that had more growth opportunity. So I was always a little jealous of Warren Buffett's methodology and structure. And I loved how sometimes he's an investor, and sometimes he's an operator and he gets to float in between the two. And that's really my favorite place. So we've been studying this for years. We've certainly applied it in the different businesses or the different investments we've done over the last 15 years. So I think this is a culmination of, of a lot of different learnings. And those learnings have certainly accelerated since we started this model. You know, We've made a lot of mistakes, we've learned a lot, and we, we certainly have a lot of hard lessons to share.
0: That line I can't remember which because I've read all. The, I think I've read all the letters up until the 2000s. I got to get back into it. But one of the early letters that Buffett wrote said, "I haven't had a lot of genius thoughts in my life, but one of the genius thoughts I had was when I realized all this money that Berkshire Hathaway was making in the textile business, I didn't need to put it back into Berkshire Hathaway textiles. I could invest it in anything. And once I realized that, it opened up my world to new possibilities." So. That was definitely a big realization. So how do you guys manage cash flow? I want to get a little tactical here because I'm always curious about how structured it is. How many people are making that decision? I'm guessing it's you and your business partner, Xavier. What kind of models or or rules do you follow to figure out, okay, let's put this cash back into that operating business versus it's going to float up to HQ so we can reinvest?
1: Xavier and I make two main decisions. The first one is capital allocation. So are we buying a new business or are we investing? And the second one is budget feedback and budget approval. So our different platforms are run by really incredible senior leaders that have been in the industry for 20, 30 years, and we're very blessed to be working with them. And at the end of each year, they'll propose a budget for the following year, and we'll go back and forth and eventually approve the budget. And they'll operate to the budget, but at the end of the day, it's their business. Right? They run everything day-to-day. They are the face of it. They're the face and the name behind its success. The other element where we're involved is investments. right? So all of the cash from the different companies flows up to the mothership. And we get to reinvest it as we see fit. Our different CEOs sometimes will want to make a purchase and we have certain parameters for their business type. And they'll bring a business to us and say, "Hey, look, this fits within our parameters." And then at that point, we'll discuss it as a group with the CEO and decide whether it's best for us to make a purchase or whether it's best for us to keep the cash
0: on the balance sheet. So it's that simple. So do you have certain like I was talking to John Wilson at Wilson Companies, and he was saying how it's like three. I might get these numbers wrong, but it's like we're going to leave three months' worth of cash in the operating company. So if if they generate, let's say they were going to make. A million dollars, they ended up making three million dollars one quarter. They can't just hold on to that. It needs to kind of flow back up. Do you have those kinds of rules?
1: Yeah, all all of the surplus cash flows up to the mothership. So we don't we don't have like a certain number of months, but each business has their own cash flow padding that they would like to have that makes them comfortable because each business operates differently, like a swimming pool construction business is gonna have a very different payment cycle, cash flow need than our broadband businesses for example where there's you know just different types of capital outlays other than that all of the cash flow flows back to enduring ventures and then you know either we can invest that in new companies or
0: we can acquire a business within our portfolio and how are you looking at financing now so you i guess raised money family and friends you said also SBA loans at the beginning are you continuing to raise money from outside investors? Are you growing just on cash flow? And then if you're raising money, are you doing it in one pool or are you raising funds?
1: So far, we have operated off the cash flow of our different businesses. I don't actually know what I'm allowed to talk about publicly, but if we do raise capital, the way we're structured is, we're structured as a corp, right? So similar to like Apple Computer or Amazon. We are not a fund. We're not a private equity fund. We don't have carry. We don't have management fees. We're just a C-Corp. Xavier and I are the majority shareholders and board members as well. And then we have other people that have bought in, oftentimes friends of ours, or fellow entrepreneurs, or fellow holding company owners. And they buy shares in our holding company. And then we can use that capital in order to go out and buy more businesses. So we could have 2 different sources. right? We could sell shares in order to get capital into Enduring Ventures. And then we can also use the cash flow from our different companies to go and buy businesses.
0: Right. One of the things you talked about that was super interesting ahead of time was Enduring Ventures with capital. So a big part of running a holding company structure where you have to delegate the work the day-to-day to leaders is having those leaders. So it sounds like Enduring Ventures Executive Council is a management training program. Like, how does that work? And can you give us some examples of like this person came in and they did X, Y, Z, and now they're here?
1: Yeah. So, the Enduring Ventures Executive Council is a new structured program for us, but it's something that we've done loosely in the past. And it's inspired by the confluence of kind of two ideas. One is I used to run a mastermind in San Francisco for CEOs, and we used to get together, share lessons from our different companies, learn from each other. It was an incredible resource because when you're in front of your employees or investors, you can't share everything. right? It's just how business is, unfortunately. Some things you got to play close to the chest. But when you're amongst peers... You can really show your cards, you can talk about any management or financial issues that you're having and hear from other people that may have had similar experiences and really learn from them. And actually, a lot of my friends today, a lot of our peers and even investors, Xavier, my business partner, I met through that group. So it's been an incredible resource in my life. What we're doing is we're doing the same program for general managers of businesses and giving them a platform where they can meet other general managers or CEOs. So you could be a general manager at a very successful plumbing company, and we would connect you with a general manager of a very successful electrician company or general contractor, for example. Put you guys all in a room together, give you an opportunity to connect and learn from each other. We'll do all the filtration to make sure that it's people that know what they're talking about and have had real experiences that they can share. So you can really build a community. That's the first part. And what we've done with some of these general managers in the past is we've partnered together on businesses. We've helped them go buy their own companies. So for us, you know, this is an opportunity to build relationships with incredible leaders, give them a way to learn from each other and develop their own businesses. And every once in a while, somebody will raise their hand and say, Hey, I want to work with enduring ventures. You know, it'd be my vision to own my own business. And we can help you do that, because that's really our specialty, right? doing the m and a the, the acquisitions, figuring out the financing, figuring out the structuring, and really supporting somebody into their own business
0: so you guys would actually enter an industry or buy a business purely based on obviously the business has to be good, but if you had a really good leader in a certain space, you'd buy a business just to kind of partner up with that leader.
1: yeah, I'll give you an example right now, so about a year ago, we met a gentleman who has been in the gas and oil repair industry for 30 plus years. And he's ran a couple of very successful businesses, three businesses of varying sizes, most recently an $80 million business, $80 million in revenue business. So he's always been in the executive chair. He's been paid well, he's been bonus well, but he's he's never really had skin in the game. And he wants to own his own business. Incredible guy, incredibly hardworking, and has a team of people that follow him around. Again, very senior people, very capable. And together, they're like the fantastic four, you know, and and they just, they've never had the experience of acquiring a business, financing a business, structuring a negotiation. So we're putting in, and they also don't have all the capital they need to buy a business. So we're partnering with these guys we're putting in some capital, we're helping them buy a business, helping them finance the business, and they will be the main owners and we will be more passive shareholders and really guiding the process, guiding their startup. I don't know anything about the gas and oil industry, but you know they have 30 years of experience and the industry is really interesting because there's millions of miles of pipeline and many of them were built like 50 or 100 years ago So they're leaking, they're like ecological, environmental problems. So the country really needs to invest in that type of resource. And and these guys have the skills and the team to do so. so. So we're super excited about that.
0: How do you spend your time? What's your day like? Oh, man, I'm an omnivore. So I do a little
1: bit of everything. Most of it is researching interesting companies, reading shareholder letters, learning about learning from the greats occasionally i'll take some meetings with some of our key operators fortunately we don't do that too much because they're very senior and they're really running their own business and you know most of our meetings happen on a quarterly board level basis so a lot of my work is is just focusing on new investments and and learning
0: do you get a lot of inbound i mean do you have people coming to you or do you want people coming to you saying hey i have this business you guys should buy it
1: yeah definitely We do fortunately get an incredible amount of businesses reaching out to us through Twitter, through our website, sometimes through these podcasts. I would love if folks reach out to me. You know, if you have a friend that's considering selling their business or if you want to sell your own business, reach out to me. Again, I have a a newsletter and, and a pretty large Twitter presence. If you're interested, you know, I'm happy to talk a little bit about your business there. Oftentimes that gets interest and I can connect you with people that could be good buyers and look sometimes enduring ventures is a good buyer as well you know i think one of the reasons owners really resonate with what we do is we're not private equity you know we're not going to buy your business and then try to flip it for a profit two or three years later owners have spent 20 30 years building their legacy building relationships with their customers and their employees and you know frankly building wealth around that around those two things And they want to make sure that when they leave, their customers are treated well, their employees are treated well. And the only way to make sure of that is if you know who's buying your business. You really can't control the narrative if somebody's going to keep selling and selling your company. So we hold businesses for the long term and I think it's something that
0: owners have really resonated with. Where do you see Enduring Ventures 5-10 years out? Oh man, that's a hard question. I would not have told you
1: that we are where we are today 3 years ago. So that's how much foresight I have on things. I know that you know I have an incredible business partner. He's incredibly smart, borderline genius. We both love working together. And we fortunately are surrounded by really amazing leaders and great companies. And our intention is just to keep doing what we're doing. Looking for great businesses to buy, making a couple of choice acquisitions per year. And frankly, our plan is to do this until we die or retire. And that's you know 30-plus years from now. So we're in no rush to get anything done. But every day, we'll take a small step.
0: You don't have to share the numbers. But if you could... like I don't know if you had this, but you had certain benchmarks for where you'd be, let's say, three years out. How far over are you? Are you double where you thought you'd be? Triple or a whole different ballpark?
1: We set a 10-year projection for our original investors because we asked them to invest into a blind pool. And we said, look, if we execute against our model, here's how big we think we can get over the next 10 years. And we really encourage them to think in the longer... On a longer time frame, 10, 15, 20 plus years. And what we've been able to do in the first 3 years is we've basically been able to pull forward about 8 years of growth, maybe 7 years of growth that we've modeled out. It's just a combination of, you know, luck and timing and and a little bit of hard work and nothing else. You know, I couldn't, it's not like we pulled off some kind of magic trick. A confluence of factors had to come together for this to happen.
0: Yeah. Sieva, where can we find you? On Twitter, or email? I'm pretty active on Twitter
1: these days. It's just my first and last name. I think I'm the only Sieva Kaczynski <laughs> on the internet that's S-I-E-V-A. <laughs> K-O-Z-I-N-S-K-Y. I also started a newsletter just a few weeks ago. It's called the Business Academy.substack.com, the Business Academy. And in there, I'm basically sharing some of my key learnings of the week, any interesting readings that I've had and why I think they're interesting. So I'm summarizing a lot of information that I'm processing throughout the week into a short email. And then every once in a while, like today, I'll share a cool deal that's off market where an owner came to me and is, is looking to sell. And I'll tell you a little bit about how I'm thinking about it. So certainly follow me on Twitter and you know I'm easy to reach. DM me, shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from folks.
0: Yeah, I love your Twitter. I love your deal breakdowns on Twitter. I'm going to sign up to your Substack after this. And really great talking to you, man. This was awesome.
1: Yeah. Likewise. I'd love to interview you next and do a a deal breakdown of of your business. It seems like what you've built is really incredible. And if you're open to sharing, I'm sure folks would love to hear about it.
0: Episode two. Episode two. (laughs) Sounds great. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple or Spotify. Let's other folks know that you love the show. And it lets us know that we're doing something right.